Welcome, everybody, to the Church of Grace. My name is Patrick Hayes. Today is Friday, March 31st. We are going to be talking about the real meaning of Easter. Before we get into that, let's have a word of prayer, and then we will jump in. Lord, you are awesome and powerful. Lord, you are kind, you are merciful, you are gracious, you are long-suffering. Lord, you are the creator and the savior of the world. You are our king and you are my friend. And Lord, I am grateful that we can come to you in prayer to start this evening, because if you're not involved with this evening, it's just going to be a train wreck. Lord, I want to ask you, please forgive me of any shortcomings, any faults or failures, any sins in my life. God, I want to be right with you as I bring the Word of God to these good people. And Lord, thank you so much for the great number of people that came out on a Friday night to hear the Word of God and to listen to me get off into the weeds about Easter. God, thank you for this building. Thank you for the tremendous amount of popcorn and soda that we have this evening. God, I just want to ask that you'd be present with us. Please speak through me. And Lord, as we get into a lot of topics that are going to be certainly controversial, and uh, I just want to ask that you give us all a soft heart, give us ears to hear, and God, please <clears throat> speak to everyone where they are. Some folks are going through a real hard time, and, and we want to ask that you'd be with them. Lord, some people are having a great week and just have things to celebrate. want to pray specifically, Lord, for uh, Julie, who is traveling out of town to see her father, who is uh, very sick. She's going to be down in uh, Arizona with her sisters, and we just want to ask for traveling mercies there. Keep her safe. Bless their time. <clears throat> And uh, Lord, please bring comfort uh, to that family. Uh, Lord, want to pray for uh, for Jean, uh, Oni's mom. Want to pray that uh, the test results coming back here in the next couple weeks would be uh, positive news. And we want to pray for comfort uh, to be brought to that family as we're waiting to hear what's next. Lord, we have some folks who are out sick and folks who are traveling out of town for work, and we just want to ask that you'd be with all of them. Please be with Louie as he is traveling uh, around the country. I don't know where he is, but I hope he's tuning in tonight. Georgia. He's in Georgia, <clears throat> so they probably don't have electricity or the internet down there. But And God, we, we really do love you. Please help us to have a good, fun time along with going over a whole bunch of information. In Christ's name, we pray and all God's people said, amen. I'm going to try to talk loud. I don't, I'm, I'm assuming everyone can hear me, but we don't have a microphone, so I'm just going to talk as loud as I can. Tonight, we are going to talk about Easter. I cover this subject about once every two or three years, and we always seem to have a good turnout, because whether you agree with what I'm going to tell you tonight or not, it is at least entertaining. This year, I'm going to do it a little differently. I want to start by looking at what God thinks about paganism and idolatry in the Bible. After that, look at some Bible, some history, and some paganism and witchcraft. And although it's not my goal tonight, I might just be able to offend everyone equally. The real meaning of Easter. After the nation of Israel left Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, they marched into present-day Saudi Arabia, and Moses climbed Mount Sinai to visit with God. Although God gave Moses about 613 laws that the Jews were to live by, there was one central theme. You are not to live like the pagan nations around you live. You are to live differently. You are to live as I say. You cannot worship their gods or their idols. You cannot go to their temples. You cannot use enchantments or observe their times. Daughters cannot marry their sons, and you cannot take their daughters to marry your sons. You are to live a separated life that will be an example to the world. The whole world will know that I am your God and you are my children. God was 100% against paganism. 
we see how serious God is when we look at how he treated it. When Moses was on the mountain with God, the people got tired of waiting. They brought their gold to Aaron, the brother of Moses. He made a golden calf, and the people started worshiping it. They got naked and danced around it and bowed down to the idol. And when Moses came down and saw it, God told him how to handle the situation. We read in Exodus 32, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp, and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. God had Moses gather the tribe of Levi. They drew their swords, and God told them to go through the camp and slay everyone involved with the idolatry. God said they weren't to hesitate, even though they had to slay their brother, their companion, or their neighbor. And 3,000 people died that day because of the pagan practices and the idolatry in the nation of Israel. God gave specific instructions for Moses to build the tabernacle. In Leviticus chapter 8, God calls a family to the priesthood. God chose priests out of the tribe of Levi, specifically from the family of Aaron, the uh, the brother of Moses. Aaron had four sons. Two of them were named Nadab and Abihu. We're going to get back to them in just a second. What they do is they make the priestly garments. They go through a great amount of ceremonial preparation and cleansing. And then Aaron offers the first sacrifices, the sin offering, the burnt offering, the meal offering, and the peace offering. The glory of the Lord appears unto all the people, and fire came out from the glory of the Lord and consumed the offerings. Then something terrible and frightening happens. We read in Leviticus 10, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. God is very specific in the way his people are to worship him. Nadab and Abihu did something very offensive to God, and he killed them in what seems to be dramatic fashion. The strange fire was unacceptable. We are not to worship God however we see fit. He expects very specific obedience. Those two men, nephews of Moses, the man that God called his friend. But it didn't matter. Now, a lot of folks will say at this point, Patrick, that's the Old Testament stuff. Christians don't die in the New Testament for disobedience. Christians don't die today in churches for disobedience. Yes, they do. We read in 1 Corinthians 11, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, body and blood of the Lord, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink that cup. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Notice Paul uses the term many two times in the last verse. Paul did not say, well, this one guy a long time ago, he died for doing something wrong. Paul said, many are weak, sick, and dead because they didn't take the Lord's Supper seriously 
and they did it wrong. Now, keep in mind, these Christians don't lose their salvation, but they were taken out of the game. The theme through the whole Bible is that we need to do things God's way and that God is very specific. And every time people dabble in paganism and idolatry, God hates it. Many times people die. Now, I know what you're thinking. This is not the lighthearted Easter message I was expecting. Well, we're going to shift gears and get into Easter here in a second. But to make sure there are no surprises, I'd like to start off by telling you exactly how I feel. Easter is 100% a pagan holiday. I'm going to let that sink in for a second, and I'll repeat it. And I know what everyone must be thinking right now. Who is this guy, and what on earth is he talking about? Remember, all I promised was free popcorn, and you would not forget this evening. Easter is 100% a pagan holiday. It is not Christian at all. The Bible tells us what is Christian, but here's what I'm going to, this is the, the big reveal. People don't really want to know what the Bible says. They feel comfortable in the traditions of men than obeying the word of God. Let's look at a principle. Sola Scriptura. Does anyone know what that means? It's Latin. It means by Scripture alone. This is the primary doctrinal belief of our church, and as Christians, we should make this principle our goal. Now, what does that mean? It means that when discussing matters about God, there is only one place we look for our answers, the Bible. Now, this is difficult, and we all fail when we attempt to live our lives by the Bible alone, but it must be our goal. The idea here is what I call the Desert Island Challenge. Now, I didn't coin that term. I heard it from a preacher much smarter than me, but I really like the idea. If you were stuck on a desert island with nothing but the Bible, what would you believe? I think we would all agree that our thinking would be very different. We would not be affected by outside influences. The religion we belong to, the family we are raised in, the books we've read, and popular culture, none of it would matter. None of it would affect our beliefs. We would be looking at the world through the lens of the Bible. We would have a biblical worldview. When talking about matters of faith and practice, we look for answers in the Bible alone. When searching for answers in the Bible alone, many times the answers are not what we wanted. Many times what God tells us to do is difficult and uncomfortable. And tonight, if you are a person who goes to church anywhere in America, I'm going to tell you that your church is doing something wrong. And please understand, I know that what I'm saying is controversial, controversial, and I understand that I hold to the minority opinion. I am not asking you to agree with me. As a matter of fact, as with everything I teach, I ask everyone to disagree with me. Don't believe a word I say. Do your own homework. But if you find that what I'm telling you lines up with the Word of God, then we need to consider making a change. I'm going to show you the real meaning of Easter, which has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus or his resurrection. We're going to get the Bible and some really neat history stuff as well. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, the truth shall make you free. My goal tonight is not to make you comfortable, but to tell you the truth. I want to give a brief testimony and little bit of my church experience, and I think that might help with some of the material we are going to cover tonight. So I really never held a Bible in my hand until I was about 21 years old. 
after reading it through a couple times, I started going to church and I had a lot of questions. I was the kid that always had a question. The first spring came and talk of Easter was everywhere. And I started asking all of my new Christian friends, hey, what do bunnies laying eggs have to do with Jesus raising from the dead? Well, they didn't know. So I started asking different pastors that I'd met. The pastors I asked didn't have an answer either. The only thing I knew for sure was asking these questions made everyone mad. That made me want to figure out the answers to these questions even more. So let's get into it. What is the meaning of Easter? What have we all been taught the meaning of Easter is? What does it represent? What are we celebrating? Resurrection of Jesus, right? Who doesn't know that? When was Jesus crucified? Now, not the day of the week or the date. We're going to cover that day of the week issue in a little while, but that's not what I'm asking you about. Don't think about answering this question with the calendar that we use today, the Gregorian calendar. Think of it using a Jewish calendar. What else was happening on the day Jesus was crucified? The Passover. Jesus was the Passover lamb. Every Jewish family in Jerusalem was celebrating the Passover that evening. In Exodus 12, we read about the Passover. Now, this is the very first Passover when Moses and the nation of Israel is still in Egypt. We're going to go over it briefly. We're going to talk about Passover quite a little bit here because it is pertinent to and kind of gives us the roadmap for where Easter fits in. So we're going to go over Passover here. Exodus 12, starting in verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according others, a lamb for a house. So this was a family affair. Every household had their own lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goat. Jesus was the firstborn male in his family. Jesus was without sin, just like the lamb was without blemish. And you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel in the evening. So you would keep the lamb until the 14th day. Now remember, you took the lamb to your family on the 10th day. It's important, but it's not going to be till the end of the lesson. Just keep that in the back of your mind. You took this lamb in, you kept it with the family for several days. On the 14th day, you and everyone else in Israel was going to kill the lamb. You're going to kill it. So the, the, the entire nation of Israel would do this at the same time on the same day. Then we read in verse 7, And they shall take the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. The blood would be applied to the doorposts of your house. Every member of your family would go into the house, through the door, and under the blood, and they would be safe. God said, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will born in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. God the Father said, there is one thing that will save you. He said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
It is still the blood that saves from sin. Nobody gets into heaven unless they are covered by the blood of Jesus. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. God uses the word forever. Every year, Passover was celebrated, so one day when Messiah came, everyone would know that it was him. After Jesus came, Passover was celebrated by the Christian church for over 300 years as a reminder and a celebration of the sacrifice he made on the cross. After Passover, there's another holiday. It says, seven days ye shall eat unleavened bread. Even the first day ye shall put it away. Uh, you shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. After Passover comes the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So here I'm going to have a calendar for you, and we're going to take a look at how these two work together. So this is the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This small calendar is very important. It's really important for your study of the Bible anywhere, but it's certainly pertinent for tonight. you got to know how this works for this evening. The first month in the Jewish calendar is the month Nisan. Here are uh, nine days in the month that we'll use to explain Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, today, with our calendar, when does the day end? It's currently Friday. When's it going to be Saturday? At midnight, right. That is different from how God sets it up in the Bible. God's day in the Bible ends at sundown. So here you have the 13th day, and at midnight it changes into the 14th day, and then at midnight it changes into the 15th day. But that's not how God set it up in the Bible. What God uses is sundown. So you see here, you have sundown on the 13th. That actually starts the day of the 14th. And we find this through the whole Bible. From Genesis, when God created everything, he sets the day like this. The days start the evening and then the morning. They don't start with the morning and then go to the evening. If you don't understand this, if the Bible gets a little confusing at points when you try to draw stuff out. So understand that days start at sundown. So these red lines represent sundown on the 13th and then on the 14th. So the 14th day really starts on what we would consider the 13th day of the week, but at sundown. If you think about it, every week there is a Sabbath day, the Saturday, right? The Saturday Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath. But it doesn't start at midnight on Friday night. God set it up in the Bible for the days to start at sundown. So tonight is Friday night. When the sun sets, what will that start? It'll start Sabbath. So even though Passover starts on the 14th day of the month, as described in Exodus and later in Leviticus, it actually starts at sundown on the 13th. I hope that's not too confusing, because it's only going to get a little worse. <clears throat> now, immediately following Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is seven consecutive days, and it starts after the Passover. So after the Passover on the 14th, from the 15th through the 21st is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now understand, this is the 14th the first month of the Jewish calendar. Passover is sometimes in March, sometimes it's in April. Our calendar, the Gregorian calendar, set up when Rome ruled the world, is not what God used. God set up his calendar a long time before that. I'm just going to ask this real quick, and this is okay to, to jump in. Any questions on this little calendar? To clear it up if I did a bad job. 
So every year on the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar is Passover. And then at sundown, you start a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Joe. So April is always going to be the first month. Oh, no. No, the first month is the month of Nisan. So in the Jewish calendar, it looks nothing like ours. So the first month in the Jewish calendar, Passover, sometimes falls in March. Sometimes it falls in April. It starts on the 14th day of the Jewish calendar on the first month. You got it. So when we're thinking 14th day, don't think 14th of March or April. It, Yeah, just put that out of your head. We're talking... The first day of Nisan depends on the year. Okay, so this is a great question. Let's clear this up. How many days are there in the Gregorian calendar in a year? Close. Come on, there's got to be a mathematician that knows closer. Yes, Faith? 365 and a quarter. That's how many days it takes to, re- to go around the sun. How do we make up for the quarter, Faith? Every four years, we add a leap year. We add an extra day. The Jewish calendar is made up of 12 30-day months. And what they end up doing is they add a month to their calendar, and I'm not kidding when I say every so often. Their calendar is based on the lunar cycle. Their calendar starts with the moon. When you can see the first sliver of the moon over in Israel, you will hear trumpets blast. That is the beginning of the month, and your entire life is based on the sighting of the new moon. So that is the difference between the Gregorian calendar and the Jewish calendar. Now, because the Gregorian calendar has 365 and a quarter days, and because the Jewish calendar has 360 days, when God starts talking about a prophecy that's going to happen in so many years, guess what? If you're not using the Jewish calendar to do the math, you're going to be way off when you're trying to figure out where it fits in. So understand when you're calculating dates based on prophecy, you have to understand which calendar you're using and how it works. Very good question. Did that help or did that make it way more confusing? Either way, we're going to push on. All right. (laughs) Now, in John chapter 1, we read, The next day John seeth Jesus coming on to him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. This is a fulfillment of the prophecy from Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham took his son Isaac up onto Mount Moriah, and Isaac turned to his father and said, Dad, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham turned to Isaac and said, God will provide a lamb. This is the lamb that God provided many thousands of years later. This is in John chapter 1 when Jesus was going to the Jordan River to get baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist, a prophet of God, sees Jesus coming far off and says, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. We see this again in Matthew 26. Jesus says, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. So again, I ask you, the question before was, when was Jesus crucified? Anyone want to take a guess now, after we had that little lesson? When was he crucified? Joe, you said it right before. On Passover. Jesus was the Passover lamb. How long until he rose from the dead? Yeah, three days and three nights, right? We all heard that. We've all read the book of John. Okay, now let's go over some dates for Easter and Passover. Because remember, well, let's just ask the question. Do we all agree that Jesus was crucified on Passover? Is there anyone that wants to argue that point? Okay, good. That's the foundation of basically everything in the Bible. Jesus is the Passover lamb. So if we go back to our calendar... 
on the 14th day, that's Passover. And on that day, everyone killed their lamb, cooked their lamb, ate their lamb. Jesus died on that day prior to sundown. And then remember, what was the big deal about Jesus dying? He died before sundown. And they said, we got to hurry up and get him down and get him buried in the tomb before sundown because sundown starts the Sabbath and we can't be working on the Sabbath. So there was a timeline issue. So Jesus had to be dead and buried on Passover. So the idea here, folks, is as all of the nation of Israel is killing their lamb for their family, Jesus, the lamb of God, died for all of us on the cross. Now, shouldn't Easter be three days and three nights after Passover? Yeah, you'd think so if it had something to do with Jesus raising. If that doesn't bother you, it gets worse. Here in 2008, Easter was on March 23rd. Passover was on April 20th. Jesus died on Passover. Easter, the day that we're told he rose from the dead, happened 31 days before he died. Do you believe me when I say Easter and the resurrection of Christ have nothing to do with one another? If Easter was related to the resurrection, it would be fixed to the first month of the Jewish religious calendar, the month of Nisan. Since Easter was not practiced by or taught by Christians in the Bible, where did it come from? Well, to answer this question, we're going to take a look at some pagan history. Hold on to your socks. It gets worse. We start in the Roman Empire around 27 BC in the city of Pergamos. Does the city of Pergamos sound familiar to anyone? The first temple was erected for emperor worship. When writing the book of Revelation, the apostle John wrote down seven letters from Jesus. Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches. One of the churches was the church at Pergamos. The Apostle John called the temple there the seat of Satan. It's believed to be the Pergamon altar now on display in a museum in Berlin. After Julius Caesar came Caesar Augustus. He was the emperor when Christ was born. Caesar Augustus started the Roman religion that worshipped the emperors. The Roman emperors were believed to be deities. They had a temple in Pergamos, and every single group that lived in Rome had to go to Pergamos one time a year and take a pinch of incense and throw it in the fire as an offering to the emperor. They didn't care who you were. Your people had to come and pay their respects and worship the emperor. There was one group that wouldn't do it. The Jews were given a special release from doing this because they flat said, we will just go ahead and die before we worship a pagan god. Later on, and you read this in the book of Revelation, when John writes about Pergamos, that there were martyrs in that town, because after Christ, Christians took the same stance. They said, we will not even offer a pinch of incense. And keep in mind, this was not a big deal. They literally were there. Okay, who are you and what group? Okay, there's the incense. Great. Check your name off. Go home. That's it. It didn't cost any money. We just need to write it down that you worship Caesar. After Christ was crucified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, the Christians faced horrific persecution by the Roman government. Emperor Nero set fire to Rome and blamed the Christians. He was the one who executed Paul. 
Nero was the beginning of what we call the ten waves of persecution. In 70 AD, under Emperor Vespasian, General Titus marched into Jerusalem with three Roman legions. They laid siege to Jerusalem and ultimately destroyed the city and the temple, just as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. The Jews have not had a temple since that time. Under Emperor Trajan, Christianity was illegal by penalty of banishment. Under Marcus Aurelius, there was the most severe persecution since the time of Nero. If you turned in a Christian, you got that Christian's property. Family members would betray each other. Friends, neighbors. If someone found out you were a Christian and you turned them into the Roman government, they gave you their estate. Everybody was on the lookout for a Christian that they could turn in so that they could massively increase their wealth. Emperor Decius required public sacrifice to the pagan gods throughout Rome. Valerian required the clergy to publicly sacrifice to pagan gods. And under Diocletian, the order was given to burn every Christian book and level every church throughout Rome. Christians in every town were seized, severely tortured, and then burned alive. And this was often carried out by the local pagans. Officers of the state were not required to carry out the executions. During this time, no sympathy was given for age or gender. They went after the elderly as well as infants. Then in the year 313, Emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan. The persecutions stopped. Subjects of Rome could follow any religion they chose. All edicts of Diocletian were repealed. Christianity was legal again. And for the longest period of time since Christ, Christians were free from persecution. They came out from hiding and were allowed to worship their God. And after centuries of persecution, I would imagine that had to feel pretty good. But it came with a price. Emperor Constantine exercised leadership in the church, appointing bishops, calling the Council of Nicaea, and making himself, in effect, the head of the church. Christianity was run by a pagan sun-worshipping Roman emperor, and after that, the single worst event in the history of the church happened. Emperor Theodosius made Christianity mandatory. It became the state religion of Rome. Now, on the surface, you might think, well, that sounds pretty good, Patrick. What's wrong with that? It ended up being the single greatest attack on Christianity that the devil came up with throughout all of history. On February 27th, 380 AD, Emperor Theodosius signed a decree It made Christianity the religion of the state and punished the practice of pagan rituals. Non-believers began to be persecuted with the same fervor that was once reserved for Christians and Jews. Pagan rituals were acts of high treason. Temples and sanctuaries were destroyed, including the Oracle of Delphi, ancient Greece's legendary source of wisdom. Now, the question I have for you is, did every pagan lay down their idols and say, okay, I'm a Christian now? Of course not. The pagans gave up and joined the state-run Christian church. The church was filled with unregenerate pagans. Every pagan idol worshiper in the Roman Empire was forced to convert to Christianity. They did not convert. They did not believe. They simply went along with the new law to avoid persecution. So paganism was Christianized. The two merged together, and to make the transition easier, 
pagan festivals were converted into Christian ones. They literally invented holidays. They took the dates and the practices of the pagans and they slipped a Christian name on them. The state-run Christian church adopted pagan practices and idol worship. This is the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church, a government-run version of Christianity that adopted the pagan practices and idolatry of all of pagan Rome. Roman historian Eric Orland, talking about this period of time, says that Roman religion to adopt foreign gods and practices into its pantheon is probably its defining trait. Many divinities were brought to Rome and installed as part of the new Roman state religion. Does anyone know what the word Catholic means? It means including a wide variety of things, all embracing, ecumenical. Emperor Constantine's Roman Catholic Church welcomed paganism and witchcraft into the fold. It was really a political move by Emperor Constantine. Pagan temples became Christian churches. Pagan priests slipped into positions of the Christian churches. Persecution of the church could not accomplish in over 250 years what marrying the church to the world did instantly. The true believers in Christ refused to take part in this state-sponsored pagan version of Christianity. They went back underground again to worship their true God in secret. They were hunted and killed for another 1,200 years. This started because they would not join the Roman pagan version of Christianity. True Christians became known as heretics, and they were hunted down and killed throughout Europe for centuries. They arrested and tortured men, women, and children for owning a Bible or preaching the gospel. And from this single event, Christianity worldwide has been suffering because of the union with paganism. Today, we are still fighting the marriage to paganism. Now, let's take a brief look at witchcraft and their calendar. The pagan calendar is broken up into eight festivals. You have one at the spring and fall equinox, and you have one at the summer and winter solstice, and you have four more in between each solstice and equinox. You'll notice one witch's festival in the end of March called Astara. You should also notice that on the wheel, it is represented by a bunny rabbit. There are two other witches' holidays on the wheel that should get your attention. One is the honoring of, of the dead on Sam Hain, which falls over 31st. And that really shouldn't come as much of a surprise that Halloween is a pagan festival, but you do have to explain that to a lot of Christians. And then also please notice the winter solstice festival of Yule. That one starts on the 21st of December and runs for 12 days. Now, there's some other famous day that lands in the middle of that festival. I don't remember what it is. This pagan spring festival was adopted by the Roman Catholic Church in an attempt to make the pagans more comfortable. They took on their festival, called it Christian, adopted their practices, and we have Easter. That is why bunnies lay eggs. It has nothing to do with Christianity. It is pagan idol worship. Now let's look at the Bible. In Acts chapter 12, now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had... Now, real quick, I, I need to make this point. Then were the days of unleavened bread. Is that a worthless detail? Did God accidentally put that in there? No, he's putting that in there as a marker for a timeline so we can learn something. And when he had 
apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Easter was a pagan holiday that Herod, the king, celebrated. Now, many will make the claim that the word Easter should actually be translated Passover. If this were the case, then Herod would be waiting an entire year to execute Peter at the next Passover, because the Feast of Passover just happened. We know this because in verse 3, we read, then were the days of unleavened bread. We went over this calendar, and you need to understand this, as I said before. You have Passover, then what comes right after Passover for seven days? The Feast of Unleavened Bread. So if this is Passover, then you have the days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and Peter was arrested and held, and Herod said, we're going to wait till Easter to kill him. Well, that makes sense if Easter is Herod's pagan holiday. But if you want to believe that it's really supposed to say Passover, not Easter, then what we're saying is that Herod is really going to wait until next Passover to kill him. So Passover is a 24-hour period. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a seven-day period that always follows Passover. The Bible says Passover happened, then Peter was arrested, then were the days of unleavened bread, which happened after Passover. Then Herod was holding Peter in prison to execute him on Easter. You see, Easter is not Passover. Easter is not the day Christ resurrected. Easter is a pagan holiday that happens to be celebrated in the springtime around the same time as Passover. The Roman custom of the times was to take a prisoner that was unilaterally hated and execute them on their Roman pagan holiday. Herod didn't want to execute Peter, a criminal, during the holy day of the Jews. Herod hated the Jews. So did all of the Romans. Herod wanted to kill Peter on his pagan holiday, which was, as the Bible says, Easter. All right, did you ever wonder what bunnies and eggs have to do with the resurrection of Jesus? I hope so. If not, that's okay. But understand, I have to ask that question. That doesn't make sense to me. I hope it doesn't make sense to you. Every spring, the Babylonians thought it would be a good time to ask their goddess, Ishtar, for new babies. The 19th century Scottish Protestant clergyman Alexander Hislop's book, The Two Babylons, is still considered a definitive work on pagan customs that survive in today's religious practices. On Easter, he wrote, what means the term Easter itself? It is not a Christian name. It bears its Chaldean origin on its forehead. Easter is nothing else than Astarte, one of the titles of Beltis, the Queen of Heaven, whose name, as pronounced by the people of Nineveh, was evidently identical with that now in common use in this country. That name, as found on the Assyrian monuments, is Ishtar. During the springtime, pagan nations would make sacrifices and por perform rituals to make the goddess happy. The springtime goddess of fertility. It's where the bunnies and the eggs come from. The Babylonian goddess Ishtar, or Eshtar, was the goddess of fertility. In Greek, she is called Astarte. In Hebrew, she was called Ashtaroth. In English, she is called Easter. Bunnies and eggs are the symbols of fertility. Now, the Bible mentions this pagan god many times. In Judges chapter 2, verse 13, the goddess Ishtar would descend down in an egg. Oh, sorry, in Judges 2, 13, and they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. The goddess Ishtar would send down in an egg to receive the sacrifices which were made in order to have a fertile civilization. Now, when pagan nations wanted more corn, what would they burn on the altar? Corn. When they needed more rain, what would they pour out on the altar? Water. And when they wanted more children, what would they sacrifice on the altar? 
babies. This is sacrificing children to Molech. Molech is talked about through the Bible. He is once of the principal pagan gods that the Lord commanded us not to sacrifice our children to. We read in Leviticus 18, And thou shalt not let any of thy seed pass through the fire to Molech. Neither shalt thou profane the name of the Lord God. I am the Lord. In 2 Kings 23, And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the children of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter to pass through the fire to Molech. You see, child sacrifice has been around since before Joshua led the nation of Israel into Canaan land. The Bible talks about it a lot, and God forbids it over and over and over again. The Easter eggs, painted with the blood of the sacrificed children, and then they were hung up in trees as decoration in honor of Molech and Ashtaroth. Here is a picture of Ishtar flying over the land during springtime. What is flying around with her? A stork and bunnies. As I said before, I say now again, Easter has absolutely nothing to do with the resurrection of Christ. Okay, now on to the good news. The Feast of Firstfruits. We read about it in Leviticus 23. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak of Israel, and say unto them, When ye be come into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, uh, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest unto the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you on the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. God told the children of Israel to dedicate to him the first of everything they had, their children, their animals, their money, their produce. The Feast of Firstfruits was the time they would do that. Now, let me explain how this works and how it is related to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Again, back to the calendar. The Feast of Firstfruits fits into the Passover week. The Feast of Passover is on the 14th day of Nisan. Nisan is the first month in the Jewish calendar. The Feast of Unleavened Bread follows it. It is seven days long. The day after Passover is the first day of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Firstfruits is the first day after the Sabbath day after the Passover. The Feast of Firstfruits is the first Sunday after Passover. And what's really interesting, and we'll get to this in a second, guess how many days at, are between Passover and the Feast of Firstfruits? Just happens to be three. Now, it's not three every, day, every year, but it was three the day Jesus was crucified. The Feast of Firstfruits is always on a Sunday. This is the day Jesus rose from the dead, not Easter. Not only did God already pick the day Jesus rose from the dead, he also gave it a name, made it one of his seven feast days, and told us to celebrate it forever. Okay, so we're all clear. Every year in the springtime, there are three feast days in one week. Passover, the day after, starts a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Somewhere in that seven days is a Sunday. That Sunday is the Feast of Firstfruits. Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday, and that year it was the Feast of Firstfruits, three days after Passover. And it was not Easter, in case I hadn't said that enough yet. In 1 Corinthians, Paul, when writing to the church of Corinth, explains, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. When Paul describes the resurrection of Christ, he calls Jesus the firstfruit. 
Verse 21, for since by man came death, by man came also, also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. Just like Jesus was the Passover lamb, he was also the firstfruits. So Jesus rose on a Sunday as the firstfruits. Remember that the feast, feast of firstfruits is always on a Sunday. So if you are dying to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, and you are adamant that it be on a Sunday, then at least celebrate it on the Sunday after Passover, because that's when he rose on the Feast of Firstfruits. And the Bible makes this clear. Now, the last thing I want to leave you with is God's warning to do not the way of the heathen. In Jeremiah 10.2, Jeremiah writes, Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen. God wants a strong line of separation between his people and paganism. We are not supposed to approach their ways. We shouldn't look like or act like them. Someone should be able to tell the difference between a Christian and a pagan from across the street. The nation of Israel struggled with this throughout the entire Bible. Anyone that reads their Old Testament sees that they struggled with this again and again and again. Then Christians struggled with it for the next 2,000 years. We read in 2 Kings 17, and they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their father and his testimonies which he testified against them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the heathen that were round about them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. Notice those last six words. They should not do like them. Now, obviously, we shouldn't do the things the pagans do. That's not what God's saying. He's saying we shouldn't be like them. Do you know that there is no way to, create, uh, to Christianize paganism? There is nothing you can do to paganism to clean it up and make it Christian. You cannot Christianize whiskey or pornography. There is no way to clean it up and make it acceptable to God. God says there's that stuff over there that the world does, and there's a line, and my people are over here. They do not mix. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, and I swear this verse was written just for this Bible study. We read, take heed to thyself that thou be not snared by following them. After that they be destroyed from before thee, and that thou inquire not after their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. Did you catch that? We aren't supposed to ask how they did it. Oh, look at how pagan nations worship their God. I kind of like that. I think I'm going to do that thing that they're doing. I like that little custom of theirs. That's cute. I like the song. I like the trinket. I like the doodad. I like the whatever. God says, don't look at the way they do it. Don't try to make your worship look like them. Thou shalt unto the Lord thy God, for every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. What thing soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. So God said, just worship me the way I explained it. Don't add anything. You don't need to be adding stuff. The way I set it up was just fine. Stop adding stuff. So I have to ask these questions. If God set up a day to celebrate and commemorate the crucifixion of Christ, 
Why don't we do it? He named it Passover. He explained how to celebrate it down to the food we're supposed to eat and the story we're supposed to tell our children. Then God said, this is my special day and I want you to celebrate it forever. And if that's not enough, then he made another special day to celebrate and remember the resurrection of Christ. He named it the first fruits. He told us when it was every year. But also said, this is my special day. I want you to celebrate it forever. And instead of doing America is filled with Christians who go to churches who did the exact opposite of what we were warned about in Deuteronomy. We added a new holiday like the pagans do it. We celebrate a pagan holiday that was enacted into law by a sun-worshipping pagan emperor of Rome. None of the early church celebrated the resurrection, and nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to celebrate the resurrection. That is my case for Easter. Now, I know what I'm suggesting probably flies in the face of decades of tradition in your family and the church you grew up in. That doesn't bother me one bit to stand up here alone. But tell me that's not what the Bible says. Now, we are at 743. We started about five minutes late, so we're only 10 minutes past our normal hour. But to make sure we don't end on such a downer, we'll cover one more little bit here, and then we'll be out of here. And I will be around to answer questions or get yelled at by anyone who would like to talk to me. Let's go over the day of the week of the crucifixion. The observance of Good Friday and Easter Sunday have perpetuated the traditional chronology that the crucifixion took place on Friday and that the Lord's body was buried on that day about 6 p.m. and that he rose from the dead early on the following Sunday morning. However, this belief is tradition and nothing more. The Bible is clear there is no way Jesus could have been crucified on Friday, and it explains it in three different ways. Number one, there are not three days between Friday and Sunday. We read in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the scribes and the Pharisees wanted Jesus to prove he was... God with a sign, they demanded a miracle to be performed, and Jesus explained that he would be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, and that would be their sign. Now, at the time, nobody knew what he was talking about. Like most prophecies, it only makes sense after it was fulfilled. So here, Jesus mentions three nights as well as the number of days. Therefore, the partial day does not count. Jesus again in John 2.19, Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Here he is talking about his own body. So there is no mathematical possibility you can get three days in between Friday and Sunday. Number two, the Bible doesn't say the crucifixion was on a Friday. The confusion comes in Mark chapter 15 and verse 42. It refers to the day before the Sabbath. And now when the evening was come, because it was the preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. This is where a misunderstanding come from, uh, comes from. What you have to remember is that many Sabbaths, there are seven of them in the Bible, Uh, The Feast of Trumpets is called Rosh Hashanah. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. And Pentecost, those are all called Sabbath days. Tabernacles and the first of the last days uh, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread were also called Sabbaths. Every one of these is called a Sabbath day. Because of this, you cannot take Mark 15, 42 and assume it is talking about the weekly Saturday Sabbath day. It was talking about Jesus being crucified on Passover, 
That is the day prior to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a Sabbath day. And yes, once again, we're going to use this calendar. So Jesus was crucified on Passover. Passover is not a Sabbath day. You are allowed to do work on that day. You have to do work because you're doing the preparation to kill the lamb and get it ready. The day after Passover is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is a Sabbath day. The first day and the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread are both considered a Sabbath day. Jesus was crucified on a Wednesday. He died, came down off the cross, was buried right at sundown. The next day was a Sabbath day. It was a Thursday. The Sabbath day wasn't a Saturday. It was a Sabbath because it was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which God calls a Sabbath day both in Exodus and in Leviticus. I know I went through that a little quick, but I also feel like I'm losing you. So I'm just trying to move along and get you guys out of here. I want to get you back into some popcorn and soda because that makes everybody happy. Okay, number three, the reason Jesus couldn't be crucified on a Friday is because of the Jericho journey. Now, let me explain what this means. In John chapter 12, verse 1, we read, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. So Jesus, six days prior to the Passover, traveled from Bethany, or sorry, traveled to Bethany. He was in Jericho. The problem with that is that if crucified on Friday, six days prior to that would have been a Sabbath day. Guess what Jews don't do on a Sabbath day? Travel. Yeah, they don't work either, but they don't travel across the country. So therefore, Jesus, an obedient Jew, along with his 12 disciples, 12 more obedient Jews, were not traveling. So Jesus did not get crucified on a Friday. Sorry, folks. At this point, the camera cut out and the recording ended. So that is the end of our message about Easter, Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, paganism, the Roman Empire, the Roman Catholic Church, and everything else that we talked about this evening. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, If you'd like to contact me and talk more about this, you can email me at BibleThumperPodcast at gmail.com. You can also uh, get on our YouTube channel or our Facebook page and watch us live. Uh, We have church on Friday nights at 630 Mountain Time, and then we do a live video uh, podcast every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 8 p.m. Central. Once again, thank you for joining us. I hope this was a help to you. Have a great day.